Okay, real talk. When did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Like, say I want to see what you're doing and who you're hanging with, and you're not posting about it on your story. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. Oh, yeah, that's weird. You do that? No, I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends, and then use that money to buy something at a store with Apple Pay. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. If you've been joining us since earlier seasons, you may recognize this man's name from our shows about stalkers. Arthur Wellesley, first Duke of Wellington, famously stalked by Lady Georgiana Fane, heiress and daughter of John Fane, 10th Earl of Westmoreland, and holder of many government offices. The Duke of Wellington is probably best remembered for his defeat of Napoleon Bonaparte at Waterloo. A military general, he became one of the leading military and political figures of 19th century Britain, and his portrait also became a target of theft from the National Gallery in London though not for reasons you might imagine. The Duke was once quoted as saying, the only thing I am afraid of is fear. We wonder how he felt about ransom. Welcome to Criminalia. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. There are a couple of people we need to get to know surrounding this art theft. The artist who painted the portrait, Francisco de Goya. The man who sat for the stolen portrait, Arthur Wellesley and the apparent thief, a man named Kempton Bunton. Let's start by talking about Goya and how he was given the honor of painting the general's portrait. Goya is regarded as one of, if not the most important Spanish artist of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. He was born Francisco José de Goya y Lucientes on March 30, 1746, in the small town of Fuendetodos near Zaragoza, Spain, in the northeastern Aragon region of the country. His father was José Francisco de Paula, a gilder, and his mother, Gracia Lucientes, was a member of a weakened noble family. When he was 14 years old, Goya began a four-year apprenticeship with Spanish Baroque painter José Luzon, who had studied in Naples. In his late teens, so in 1763 and then again in 1766, Goya participated in competitions sponsored by the Real Academia de San Fernando in Madrid, but he was unsuccessful both times. Sometime after 1766, and it's unclear exactly when he left, he traveled to Italy, where he is documented as living at least in the years 1770 and 1771. There, he won an honorable mention in a competition held at the Academia de Parma, which got him the attention that he needed to obtain religious commissions back home in Spain. In June of 1771, he returned to Spain, specifically to Zaragoza. 
On July 25, 1773, in Madrid, Goya married Josefa Bayeu, the sister of Francisco Bayeu, the leading Spanish artist at court. His brother-in-law greatly impacted Goya's career by getting him a position at the Royal Tapestry Factory in Santa Barbara, where Goya produced cartoons. In this instance, cartoons are the working designs that serve as guides for tapestry. They were often created on paper, but some, like Goya's, were executed on canvas and then woven into wool tapestry on a large mural scale. It was not unheard of for tapestry weavers, frustrated by their complex composition, to return cartoons to Goya. There's an alternate narrative here about the cartoons that suggests it was German painter Anton Raphael Mengs who asked Goya to work on tapestry cartoons for the Royal Tapestry Factory. But regardless, his work on tapestry cartoons elevated his name, and that's the point here. While you can view his cartoons today at the Prado Museum, many of the original sketches were sold as works in their own artistic right. Goya's career at the end of the 18th century was busy. He was very popular. He was unanimously elected to the Academia in Madrid in May of 1780. And five years later, he was appointed its deputy director. He was esteemed among his contemporaries for his ability as a portraitist. Goya received his first, and we should qualify that as first important, portrait commissions in 1783 from the Conde de la Florida Blanca and the Infante Don Luis. And he quickly became established as the portraitist of the leading members of Madrid society. Goya painted on commission between 1775 and 1791 for King Charles III of Spain and later King Charles IV of Spain, and both of those kings appointed him their court painter shortly after their coronations. Of his 63 works for the two royal palaces, Nine hunting scenes were destined for the dining rooms at San Lorenzo de la Escorial, and ten cartoons for tapestries were intended for the dining rooms at El Pardo. At the end of 1792, though, Goya fell ill to a mysterious condition that incapacitated him for much of the entire next year. It left him permanently deaf and caused him to reevaluate his work and goals as an artist. After 1801, we see that Goya was seldom given royal commissions, or at least seldom took them, but he continued to draw a large annual salary. And he continued to create portraits of government officials, in which the sitter's rank was always clearly indicated in the piece. And that includes our sitter for today's portrait, the Duke of Wellington. The portrait of the Duke of Wellington was painted by Goya during the general's service in the Peninsular War. It was kind of between the final years of the war, from 1812 to 1814. Wellesley was a leading military and political figure, and he served twice as prime minister. But as we mentioned earlier, he is best remembered for his victory over Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815. His battle plans are still studied in military academies today. But right now we're looking at just a few years before Waterloo, in 1808. The French army invaded Spain and installed a new king, King Joseph I, brother of the French emperor Napoleon. The peninsular war that followed, fought on the Iberian Peninsula from 1808 to 1814, was a period of really brutal conflict between the French and the Spanish, Portuguese, and British militaries. Goya's portrait that we're talking about here was painted just after the Duke's victorious entry into Madrid in August of 1812 a triumphant moment that established his reputation as an offensive general. His wins were the turning point in the war. 
His victory against Napoleon cemented Wellington's status as a military hero, and he's credited in part as the reason for the restoration of the Spanish monarchy. Ironically, as an aside on the Duke here, when he was young, he had no interest in a military career. Arthur had imagined himself pursuing his love of music, but here he was having a big moment in his military career. Who better to record it than the best portraitist? Goya. We're going to take a little break here for a word from our sponsors. And when we're back, let's begin by talking about what this painting actually looks like and who confessed to stealing it. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome back to Criminalia. So, Goya actually created more than one portrait of the Duke of Wellington, all within just two to three years of each other. Let's talk about which one went missing and why. Goya produced a large portrait of the Duke appearing on horseback. This is called the Equestrian Portrait of the First Duke of Wellington, and it was publicly exhibited in September 1812 at the Real Academia de Bellas Artes de San Fernando in Madrid in September 1812. That same year, he also completed a chalk drawing of Wellington. That piece now hangs in the British Museum. But the portrait of Wellington that we're interested in is the one simply known as the Portrait of the Duke of Wellington. Let's talk about what this famous portrait looks like. The head and shoulders portrait was painted between 1812 and 1814, and it shows the Duke in a three-quarter profile, and he's facing toward his right. He is standing with his head held high. His uniform bears the insignia of several military orders, and yes, there are several. Watch this. His left breast bears three stars. 
the British Order of the Bath, the Portuguese Order of the Tower and Sword, and the Spanish Order of San Fernando. He wears two broad sashes over his right shoulder, the pink sash of the Order of Bath over the blue sash of the Order of the Tower and Sword. Around his neck hangs the Order of the Golden Fleece on a red ribbon. The military gold cross hangs lower on longer pink and blue ribbons. Though the general was entitled to all nine gold clasps to the military gold cross, here he appears with only three, and art historians theorize that that might be to signify the battles he fought before the painting had been started. Experts report that the portrait appears to have been painted very quickly and with very high energy. It's largely thought this portrait was originally painted directly from life, and that Goya went back and then made changes. For instance, over the years, he altered the Duke's pose, and he also made significant updates to the piece each time the Duke was awarded new medals and military orders. The painting had passed through the Duke's family, owned by various people, until it was owned by John Osborne, Duke of Leeds. He sold it at auction to an American collector, Charles Reitzman, for £140,000 in early 1961. In May of 1961, Sir John Witt, the chairman of trustees of the National Gallery, notified the Wolfson Foundation, a major source of charitable funding and benefactor to the gallery, that, quote, a highly critical situation has now arisen concerning a picture which is an essential part of British history. The portrait of the Duke of Wellington had been sold at Sotheby's. That was completely a totally legal transaction. But because the British government decided that they did not want this painting to leave the country, the Treasury teamed up with a charity, the aforementioned Wolfson Foundation, and together they matched Reitzman's bid. It would be more than £2 million in today's prices. British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan pledged £40,000 and the foundation remitted the remaining sum of £100,000. The gift was acknowledged in Parliament and by patrons of the arts, including Sir Witt, who characterized the funding as, quote, majestic. And in August of that same year, the National Gallery in London's Trafalgar Square unveiled its newest acquisition, the portrait of the Duke of Wellington by the Spanish master Goya. And just like that, Goya's portrait of the Duke became really famous among the Brits. Locals visited the National Gallery to see what the fuss was all about and what all of that money had been spent on. But that celebration didn't actually last for very long at all. 18 days later, yeah, I said 18 days, the Duke's portrait went missing from the wall. Guards didn't report seeing any intruders, no damage was done, and there were no traces of any equipment or weapons on the scene. Nothing appeared to have been touched, yet the Goya was gone. The portrait's absence was first noticed by two patrolling guards, but each assumed the painting had been temporarily moved by staff. That really wasn't an uncommon occurrence. At the time, it was gallery policy to post a notice, which guards called tags, in place of a removed work to inform security and others of its whereabouts. But not everyone followed the process, and in this case, there was no tag on the Goya, or the empty space where the Goya should have been. Because of lax tag usage, no guard assumed, at least not immediately, that there had been a theft. At 8 a.m. the next morning, though, with the piece still missing, security got involved. 
Guards searched the gallery's conservation and photographic studios. By 9.30 a.m., the Metropolitan Police were informed, and over the next few days, the building was inspected and the gallery staff was questioned. This was the first time in the gallery's 138-year history that a theft had happened. A reward of £5,000 was offered by the Metropolitan Police for its immediate return. All reports do suggest that there was a reward, but some suggest that it was actually offered by the newspaper The Daily Mirror. And there are even some reports that suggest that both of those rewards were offered just a few years apart. So you could see where that would get confusing. And yet, with one or two rewards offered, there were still no leads. At one point, the Metropolitan Police removed every single postcard of the portrait of the Duke of Wellington from the museum to use for identification purposes. In the year after the theft, a replication of the stolen work made a cheeky cameo in well, my favorite Bond movie, the 1962 Bond film Dr. No. It was hidden in the villain's lair on Crab Key, and about 30 minutes into the movie, we see Bond take a lingering look at a pretend portrait sitting on a gilded easel. Kind of a wink and a nod to the audience that perhaps it was fictional Dr. Julius No who was the villain who stole the Goya. But no, it hadn't fallen into the hands of Spectre, and Dr. No was not behind this heist. Authorities, and actually most people you might have asked, assumed that a professional art thief or a caper crew were responsible. Newspapers speculated that a gang of Italian thieves, or perhaps even mafia, was behind the heist. Some speculated that perhaps a daring aristocrat sponsored its disappearance. I know my first thought was, probably the guy that tried to buy it wanted to take it. Right, first Charles. <laughs> like, I'm like... <laughs> But those assumptions all changed when the National Gallery, among others, began to receive handwritten ransom notes. Now, enter Kempton Bunton, a 61-year-old Newcastle retired bus driver, or perhaps cab driver or maybe truck driver, that's a little unclear, living on eight pounds a week national assistance. In a sequence of five notes, which he called comms, Bunton communicated several things to authorities, including, one, that he had the portrait. The first note was sent to the news agency Reuters on August 31st, 1961, and here we quote from it, The act is an attempt to pick the pockets of those who love art more than charity. The picture is not, and will not, be for sale. It is for ransom, £140,000, to be given to charity. Yes, while he kept Goya's priceless painting hidden in the back of his closet, Bunton sent anonymous notes to newspapers, the gallery, and other important people in the matter, consistently stating he would return the artwork on the condition that the government invest in more elderly care. The next com was received by the Exchange Telegraph News Agency on July 4, 1962. And that one stated that, quote, the Duke is safe, his temperature cared for. His future uncertain. We want pardon or the right to leave the country. Banishment? We ask that some nonconformist type of person start the fund for £140,000. Bunton's calm on December 31, 1963, which also demanded £140,000, arrived next, so that's quite a gap. On March 16, 1965, his note was marked as, quote, Fifth and final calm, and it read, quote, Goya's Wellington is safe. 
I have looked upon this affair as an adventurous prank. Must the authorities refuse to see it this way? I know now that I am in the wrong, but I have gone too far to retreat. He did not demand the ransom sum this time, but rather insisted that he would return the painting if it was agreed that it would be exhibited privately for one month and that all viewing fees, he suggested they charge five shillings a ticket, collected during that time be paid to charity. The thief? Well, of course, that guy should be granted immunity. One final correspondence was received on May 25, 1965, addressed to the Daily Mirror. In it was a left luggage ticket from the New Street Station in Birmingham. Four years after their investigation began, police rushed to that left luggage locker. Possibly the left luggage office at the station, but reports are a little fuzzy on that detail. And that's where they recovered the missing artwork. About six weeks or less-ish after the piece was found, Kempton Bunton turned himself in. We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and when we return, we will talk about what happened after Bunton entered a West End police station and confessed to the robbery. Welcome back to Criminalia. If Bunton didn't steal the painting for financial gain, then why did he steal it? Well, for reasons you might not think of. Things are about to get a little unexpected. In July of 1965, Bunton entered the now-closed West End Central Police Station and announced that he was guilty of stealing Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington. But the police didn't actually take him seriously immediately. A detective sergeant later told the court that on Monday, July 19, 1965, he saw Bunton at New Scotland Yard, asked him what he needed, and was informed by Bunton that he was, quote, giving himself up for the Goya. He had brought a statement with him to the station offering these three explanations as part of his confession, quote, one, my secret has leaked. I wouldn't like a certain gentleman to benefit financially by speaking to the law. Two, I am sick and tired of the whole affair. Three, by surrendering in London, I avoid the stigma of being brought here in, quote, chains. Bunton was really nothing like what authorities presumed or imagined the thief would look and act like. They were looking for a pro, a James Bond, and they got a man described by the New York Times as a, quote, burly, phlegmatic former truck driver. Bunton was arrested. He confessed he had taken the painting, yes, but he added he'd never intended on keeping it. To quote Bunton, My sole object in all this was to set up a charity to pay for television licenses which fund the BBC in Britain for old and poor people who seem to be neglected by our affluent society. Bunton was regularly fired from jobs, usually, we discovered, for speaking up for employees against management. He was also an aspiring playwright whose scripts had been rejected by the BBC. And he was an activist who saw television as a lifeline for lonely seniors. And he was especially concerned for those who were veterans of the First World War, including his father. Not all countries have or had this idea of a television license. So really stripped down here, the idea is in some countries it's illegal to have a television without paying an annual fee for access to television programming. 
Bunton felt the fee for the British television license was too high for those on a fixed income or those having trouble making ends meet, and he protested by refusing to pay his own license fee. And as a result, in the year 1960 alone, he had three short spells in jail. Today, if you're age 75 or older and you claim pension credit, you're entitled to a free TV license in the UK. Bunton, who passed away in 1976, we can only assume would be really pleased to hear that. Following his confession, Bunton was charged with five offenses regarding the Goya heist. One, two offenses contrary to Section 2 of the Larceny Act of 1916 by unlawfully taking the property of the trustees of the National Gallery, by stealing the portrait of the Duke of Wellington, and stealing the frame. Two, two offenses of demanding money with menace by sending threatening letters to trustee of the National Gallery Lord Robbins, as well as one of the world's great press magnates, Lord Rothermere. Three, and one offense of public nuisance by, quote, the unlawful removal and wrongful detaining of a painting on display at the National Gallery. Bunton's case was initially heard at Bow Street Magistrates Court, but was referred to trial at the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales, commonly referred to as the Old Bailey, between November 4th and 16th of 1965. He was represented by Jeremy Hutchinson, Queen's Counsel, a lawyer who had made a name for himself in the successful defense of Lady Chatterley's lover in 1960's obscenity trial. The case for the prosecution was led by Edward Cusson and Brian Leary. Bunton's defense team wanted to undermine some of the charges against him. You'll see what we mean by that in just a moment. And, of course, to persuade the jury to be sympathetic to his situation. Hutchinson, after the trial, was quoted as saying that Bunton was, quote, just rather a darling. I had an affection for him. I had a great ace up my sleeve, which was that the ex-president of the Royal Academy, Sir Gerald Kelly, had written to the Sunday Times saying that this painting wasn't worth £140,000 and that he had doubts about its authenticity. In addition, in Bunton's defense, Hutchinson also wanted to demonstrate that the accusation of stealing, we're going to air quote that in this instance, in the form of larceny, in this case would need proof of criminal intent to sell or to keep the work. The defense argued that according to the language in the Larceny Act of 1916, stealing was only a crime if, at the time of the taking, the person's intention was to deprive the owner of said property for good. The evidence in court was clear that Bunton had always said he intended to return the portrait to the National Gallery once a donation to charity had been made. In fact, he had stated that several times, and he had written it in his comms. Hutchinson argued in court that, in the strictest sense of the law, this was not technically a theft because Bunton had merely, get those air quotes ready again, borrowed the painting for that single use. And in regard to that missing frame, counsel argued that it was simply common sense that when a painting is taken, so is its related frame. Their final point, there was no villainous intent here and no actual crime. At his trial, Bunton told the court that he heard the government had paid quite a lot of money for one small painting, and he didn't feel that that was a fair thing. He described visiting the National Gallery to see what was so great about the Goya, and he explained how he navigated the heist. He described that contractors who'd been doing some renovations had left a ladder lying in the street outside. 
and a window in the men's restroom had been left unlocked. According to Bunton's story, he noted the gallery's weaknesses, and he took advantage of them. But, I mean, that's hardly a mastermind situation, just taking advantage of lax security. <laughs> a Metropolitan Police investigation at the scene revealed that, yes, his story matched. Building renovations had been in progress at the gallery on the day that the painting disappeared. Their report included that a window in the men's restroom, which overlooked the inner of the building's two courtyards, had apparently been left open. And they confirmed that a builder's ladder had been placed beneath that open window. The police had taken samples of dirt found on the windowsill. Those samples were found to be identical to mud in the inner courtyard. Similar mud marks had also been found on the top of one of the gates leading into St. Martin Street, off of Trafalgar Square. Putting this all together, the Metropolitan Police concluded that whoever had stolen the artwork had left from the inner courtyard, gone through the bathroom window, and scaled the outer gate into St. Martin Street. A government inquiry led by a Lord Bridges convened to examine how a person was able, in the early hours of the morning, to exploit building repairs in the gallery, remove the painting, scale the wall on St. Martin Street, and seemingly disappear. Sir Philip Hendy, director of the National Gallery, offered his resignation over the matter, but the trustees of the gallery refused to accept it. There were, though, a number of security changes implemented, including a night patrol with a guard dog, as well as the addition of a new, larger role of national security advisor to museums and galleries. Because Bunton had returned the painting, he was found not guilty of its theft. Additionally, a member of the Metropolitan Police Fingerprint Branch testified that while a thumbprint matching Bunton was found in his alleged correspondence to Lords Robbins and Rothermere, police had lost those letters prior to Bunton's arrest, which meant that they had no proof he had a hand in writing any threatening letters. He was acquitted on all charges except one. He was found guilty of stealing the portrait's frame. During investigation, Bunton had told authorities that he had thrown the frame into the River Thames, but during his trial, Bunton, through his counsel, stated, quote, I had no intention of keeping the painting or of depriving the nation permanently of it. As to the frame, I believe it was gold-colored, and I left it on August 21st or 22nd in 1961 in a cupboard under the stairs in a house where I lodged, which was within three miles of King's Cross. It is not true that I threw the frame into the Thames. I said this because I did not want to get the landlady into trouble. Concluding his trial, Justice Arvold spoke directly to Bunton, stating, quote, Motives, even if they are good, cannot justify theft. Creeping into public galleries to extract pictures of value so that you may use them for your own purpose has got to be discouraged. You will go to prison for three months. The case, too, led to an important clause being inserted into the Theft Act of 1968, making it illegal to, quote, remove without authority any object displayed or kept for display to the public in a building to which the public have access. And for his crime of frame theft, Bunton did spend three months imprisoned at H.M. Prison Ford in West Sussex, doing so satisfied with having made his political statement in court. So, 
you know how sometimes we have stories and then we have a but? We have a but with a capital B in this time. But it was not actually Kempton Bunton who did it. I know. I know. There's a huge <laughs> twist here. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> the person who really stole the Goya was not Kempton Bunton at all, although Kempton took the blame. The actual thief was the then 20-year-old John Bunton, Kempton's son. In 1969, John turned himself in to authorities. Much like when Kempton did, at first, the police didn't pursue his claim. Despite his confession, the director of public prosecutions decided that because there was no evidence available, it would be easier to just close the case on the matter. Plus, if they decided to try John for the theft of the Goya, they would have to put Kempton back on the stand, where he'd have to admit he perjured himself during his trial. So they did not. In 2012, though, the confidential file detailing John's confession was released to the public. John Bunton was a temporary van driver living not very far from his father's home. In his confession, he described the heist as so. First, he needed to stand on a parking meter to get himself over the gallery's back wall. To get into the main building of the gallery, he then used a 19-foot ladder left by contractors to climb through an unlocked window of a men's restroom. At the top of the main stairs, he found the painting on an easel, sectioned off within a roped-off enclosure. John told the police, quote, I went up to it, took hold of it, and carried it back to the gents' toilet. He described climbing back out the window, down the ladder, and retracing his steps to the back of the building by St. Martin Street. He stated, quote, I climbed over the wall, still holding the picture in one hand. I put the picture on the back seat of the car and drove back to my room in Grafton Street. I then put the picture under my bed. There's also one small detail that John added that we can't resist including here. He actually had to roll start his black Wolseley, the getaway car, because it would not budge. Says John's son, Chris, quote, the Duke of Wellington painting was taken from this gallery, and he spent four and a half years in my grandparents' council house in Newcastle. He continued, quote, my dad never expected to get away with it. It was an idea. That's all it was. He was working in London at the time, living in a rented room, and he wondered if it was possible. He saw the open window in the bathroom and the ladder behind the gallery, and one thing led to another. Chris has stated his father was in and out of the gallery within just a few minutes, right around 5.50 a.m., and had no plans to destroy or to sell the work once he had it. His plan was to give it to his father, Kempton. According to John, quote, he intended to use it as a tool in his campaign and that it should ultimately be returned to the National Gallery. When the police asked why he or his brothers hadn't come forward sooner, John replied, quote, he told us not to ordered us. It was his wish. John's son continued, quote, My dad looked up to his father. He was the one person who always supported him. Because he knew of John's crime, Kempton began sending notes to newspapers asking for a charitable donation because he hoped that such an act would put his son in a better light if he were to be arrested. Eventually, Kempton insisted on taking the blame himself. Says Chris, quote, 
Kempton was a flawed character. He wasn't the best father, but he did this extraordinary thing to save his son. If my dad had gone to prison at that age, it would have ruined his life. Detective Inspector George Chandler, part of the investigation into the art theft, included in his 1969 report after John's confession, quote, At the time of the offense, Kempton was 57 years old. He is a tall, heavily built man who now weighs somewhere in the region of 18 stone, and it is extremely unlikely that he would have had the agility to scale the outer wall and make his way unaided to the toilet window. He would also, in my view, been incapable of returning to the wall and climbing over it without causing some damage to the painting, whereas his son John, who at the time was only 20 years of age, is still of good physique and would have been quite capable of taking the painting in the manner in which he describes. This echoes Justice Arvold, who pronounced in court that the theft, based on the small size of the window Kempton allegedly climbed through with the painting, must have been a, quote, remarkable athletic feat for the 238-pound man who had retired from driving because of injury. So if you started out thinking that this was going to be an open-and-shut case about the stolen painting of a military general, it's kind of anything but, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) The portrait, upon its return, was shown at a press conference on May 24, 1965, and it went back on display at the National Gallery immediately after. And you can see the Duke's portrait there still, if you'd like. I don't think they serve any heist hooch there, though, so what oh, do you they have for should, us, though. I know. I'm going to tell you that I really dithered on the name here (laughs) because part of me kind of wanted to figure out a name based on the sloppy protocols in place (laughs) over a painting that had just been attained through a lot of fancy footwork in terms of funding and like making it happen because it was such an important piece. So important. Then we stuck it on an easel with a rope around it, and then we left a bunch of windows open. A window open right next to it. It was, it'll be fine. Like, <laughs> I kind of wanted to do that, but I didn't. I went with a slightly more obvious name for a drink, though, that I think is really quite delightful. And we're calling this the False Confession. You're going to be happy because there's bourbon in this no, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this one is going to, before you do anything else... Put a martini glass in your fridge to chill it. So while you're making the rest of it, you're cooling off your glass because you just want to chill your receptacle. Into your shaking tin, you're going to put an ounce and a half of bourbon, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of orgeat. If you don't have orgeat, but you have another almond syrup, throw it on in there. That's fine. And then two ounces of pineapple nectar. You're crazy. I'm sorry. I'm not crazy. (laughs) Crazy like a fox. Uh, You're not crazy. It just popped out. (laughs) So then, oh, we're not even done yet. So you're going to shake this. Give it a really good shake with ice. You want to basically make it super duper cold because there will be no ice in the glass. That's part of why we're pre-chilling. You're going to take that cold glass out, though, and you're going to pour just a little bit of Goldschlager into it and then turn it carefully so you coat the interior of the glass. But it's just like a film of Goldschlager. If you have any left at the bottom, you pour it out. You don't want it. 
And then you strain that shaken cocktail into it. And then you sip it and you go, oh, mama, I would confess to stealing things <laughs> for another sip of that. Yeah, 100%. I would take the blame. I am deeply in love with this drink, I have to tell you. It came together accidentally. As I mentioned, I think early in the season, I'm doing something with these drinks that I haven't revealed yet. And we'll, I'll probably tell you at the end. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to it. So anytime I'm doing them, I have a set of criteria in my head. And that leads me to pick things out mm -hmm. that I would include. That will all be revealed in time. But this one turned out to be even more delightful than I had anticipated. It is yummy. It's a nice transition drink. Again, a seasonal transition drink because we are here in the Northern Hemisphere into autumn now. But for some of us that live in warm places, you get like a warm day and then a cooler day and then a warm day and then a cooler day. And this, because of the cinnamon of the Goldschlager and like the warmth of the bourbon, the pineapple brings out, there's a sweetness that bourbon naturally has and it really brings that out really nicely. So delicious. This is an easy one to do the mocktail for. You are just going to sub out that bourbon like we often do for a black tea. In lieu of your Goldschlager, you're just going to do a cinnamon syrup. And if for any reason you can't get a cinnamon syrup, just make a simple syrup on the stove and throw a couple of sticks of cinnamon into it and let that simmer on low for a bit and then take those out and strain it and you're golden. You have a great little cinnamon syrup to use for whatever you may desire. Great on pancakes, by the way. It is it's very good. <laughs> that is the false confession, which is so yummy. It will make you confess to things you didn't do, hopefully. I will confess that I always have fun doing this show, and this season has been such a delight so far, and there is more to come. So we're thankful that you are along for the ride, and next week we will have another heist and another beverage, and we hope you're here with us. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.